This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Our lessons from Tom Vanderbilt's book, You May Also Like, uh, it brought up an, an interesting, um, I think, problem a lot of us have when we are dealing with um, with likes or dislikes. One of my beliefs is just because you have a preference, right, doesn't mean that it, it has to be that way. And I learned this with my kids, um, that they can have a preference for what they want, but it doesn't mean we always choose that preference. Everyone can have likes or dislikes, and when it comes down to it, we, we need to figure out how to maybe try new things. Um, maybe that won't work for us today. My wife and I have learned a crazy little secret with our own kids that sometimes it's better to not tell them what we're doing. Because the minute we make an announcement about what we're doing, everyone's going to have an opinion. And with six kids and one of them married with a husband and a grandchild, we don't have time, I guess, to make it perfect for everyone. So we always try to just instill the idea that let's just try it, right? We can try it. If you don't like it, we don't have to like it. If you push too hard on people to try stuff, a lot of times you'll just create an immediate rebellion. If you if you don't push hard on people to try stuff, then they're never going to learn what else is out there in the world. So there's a fine balance, isn't there? And any parent knows there's a fine balance to getting their child to do something, to try something, but also do it in a way that we don't want to destroy the game. It's the balance of, uh, you know, the goose and the golden egg, Aesop's fable, that you want to keep getting results in life, but you've got to do it without destroying your ability to get results tomorrow. Any parent can get something to happen today. I can get my kids to eat their vegetables. But if I get it, get them to eat their vegetables in a way that uh, actually hinders my ability to do it next time, then I'm becoming less and less effective. Our goal is to be able to be effective long term, to be able to get results today and be able to uh, get them again tomorrow and the next day, and the next day. And uh, Tom's work uh, in the example he was giving about, uh, you know, his getting his father to try a new drink or a new beer or a beverage, it's uh, it's probably very appropriate for all of us to learn. If we want to get people to try new things, then you probably need to model it that hey, this this does this does well. For, for you, they, they can see that it, it offers you an opportunity and maybe start where the people are. It doesn't mean that they even want to change their beverage choice, but you can at least offer it. And if you're offering just a taste of something else, you might want to take it, folks. Um, I mean, I know we all kind of fall in, into our entrenched stubbornness at times, but if somebody offers you a chance to try something different, Try it and know that there's nothing lost here. Just try stuff. Try it. We don't need to revert back to the, you know, the five-year-old that's not going to open his mouth to try anything new. When you're, you know, when you're 45, you can just choose to 
try some new things. And amazingly, my trying and, and tasting of sushi 10 years ago changed my life. Thank you. Thank you. Changed my life, folks. But for 35 years, I had said, nah, I don't eat raw fish. That's just horrible. It's choice, folks. Don't force choice. Choice is inevitable. Just create a great space where it's worth trying. And it's easy to try. And it's easy to fail as well. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Doing a little coach's corner for you here. Now, the breakup between Great Britain and the EU, it's it's like a... It's like a, it's a bunch of friends that you lined up years ago, and now they just don't get along. They just don't get along. So what are you supposed to do? And who do you go with, right? Do I go with my best friend, Great Britain? But I, I've really come to love and appreciate the other partners. Mm, I don't know. I don't know what you do. Well, the EU gives you financial benefits. So is your friend more important than financial benefits? No, because I feel like I can use both of them equally. How many times on the show have we talked about collaboration and the need to work together? The need to, I mean, we live in a global economy. We live in a global marketplace. And now Great Britain's going to kind of go it alone. But they still need markets, right? They still need places to put their their goods they still need trade and i guess they're assuming or believing that they'll just be able to pick that up so it, it may not be an all or nothing kind of mentality it it's this is a it's an interesting concern about isolationism in fact it reminds me of um this story that i read oh listen to this poor guy a colombian sailor found alive after two months adrift in the pacific A sailor has been rescued after spending two harrowing months lost at sea, witnessing the deaths of his three shipmates and forced to eat seagulls for survival. 29-year-old Colombian sailor was picked up some 3,500 miles from home, far out in a desolate stretch of the Pacific Ocean. According to the U.S. Coast Guard, he arrived on dry land in Honolulu on Wednesday. Can you imagine finally seeing ground? Landed on in Honolulu, saying the sailor was in good condition and happy to have survived. The sailor told officials his group of four set off from Columbia more than two months ago. When the engine of their 23-foot skiff failed, they found themselves adrift, and they were forced to eat fish and seagulls to stay alive. He told the Coast Guard the bodies of his compatriots were not on board anymore, the tiny vessel, when it was found, but the sole survivor was able to produce their passports. So they had to be let go, probably. He was also found with a soccer ball, wasn't he? No, that's 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 another show. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. this isn't. This is a different. This is a real life story. This is not. Isn't that other one a real life story too? No, really. No, that's a movie. That's a movie. I thought it was a documentary. No, Castaway. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a movie. It it was it didn't happen. But this is the music. I appreciate how you played that music behind this. But this this uh, was a real story of a guy that had to. I mean, I guess eventually these guys died, and then you just throw them into the ocean. That's what you got to do. You can't have them. Can't have them just dead there next to you. <laughs> 
Can you imagine? Sometimes that's how I feel. Alone on an island. Or just alone in a skiff. With a dead body next to you. With a dead body named Ben. Sleeping on the board. <sighs> that's what I'm afraid of for the UK. Be careful. Be careful going off on your own. Sometimes you might just be adrift for two months. And have to eat seagulls. Ugh. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Helping you see the good in the world. The guy survived. That's the good. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You just learned about our uh, physical health, right? You gotta, you gotta lose the soda. And I'm going to say, <laughs> just for my own sake, you gotta lose the sugary soda. The 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 cancerous uh, acidic soda without sugar, totally fine. No, it's not. More water, folks. Now, we tell our kids all of these things, and yet, uh, isn't it hard? Um, we, we heard earlier in the show the story about the son who called the police because his dad ran a red light. Mm, thanks, Dad. There's certain things that they see out of you, right? Uh, they see how you handle stuff. They see what you're doing. Your kids are watching you. And they don't really have a shot at a healthy life if you don't provide it. And I'm not here to make you depressed because you're just such a horrible parent. Because you're not. But they're watching. They are watching. And if we want any hope of being able to lead our families, we, we probably need to master ourselves. And find one thing, just one thing. And maybe soda is the way to begin. If you know you're a big soda lover, soda drinker, deal with it. Find a way to break the habit. And I wouldn't personally just go diet. I've been diet and that doesn't help. I find that about three times a year I quit soda for about a month. And then I go out with a bunch of friends and I watch them drink soda. And I'm like, oh, you guys are lucky. Can I just smell your drink? It's, I feel like I'm an alcoholic and I never had alcohol. So how do we break a habit? How do we break it? And But also one of the things I'd think about is instead of building the story and the belief that habits are hard to break, let's find a better reason to have the habit. Why Why would it be valuable for you to get rid of the soda? Well, my kids would be healthier. We would save money. Yeah, what else? We've got to figure out a way deep, deep down to drive this meaning much deeper than having it be about soda. And you don't even – you've got to be careful. You don't want your identity to be, well, I don't drink soda. I've never had sugar on my lips for the last six years. It drives me crazy when we become so adamant about one thing and we've created our entire identity by not doing something. You also need to have your identity being something you do do, something that you are, right? It's, I guess, easier to say what you're not, but sometimes we need to know what you are. So it's not just about a soda war. It's not just about I'm a lazy bum and I can't get off of sugar. You you also have to find what you are. And as soon as you can connect to that deeper meaning in your life and the deeper purpose of what you're about, you'll see that it's not about soda. I have a belief 
that if we could connect to our deepest, most spiritual self, we wouldn't drink soda, right? We also probably wouldn't make fun of people and we wouldn't yell and we wouldn't hold grudges because there's a deeper, better side of all of us. And uh, But our body is constantly battling that. So if we want to fix it, you don't necessarily have to just bare knuckle it and hunker down and get rid of everything in life that tastes good. You might also just want to figure out a deeper purpose for who you are. And again, you don't also have to go sit on a mountain like a monk and meditate. What it might simply mean is I got to just figure out why health is so important to me. And it might simply be because it gives me a body that works. And when my body works, it makes this life a little easier to live. It gives me a chance to live longer so I can learn more. If I can figure out why I'm even on this big ball of mud, this planet, then I want to be here to, to learn. I think I'm here to learn. And if I'm slowly burning the candle at both ends of my life, then my learning is going to be shortchanged. And short change simply because I like sugar. I again, I don't think I don't think your God is up there sitting like I cannot believe he's drinking another super big gulp. But your conscience might be telling you something, and it might be telling you something because you know something about you. You know that you're not drinking enough, or you're not eating enough vegetables, or you're not being the person you need to be, and you can just, I guess, go medicate it by, you know, escaping and getting away from it. Or you could just dig a little deeper and find some other way to connect to a deeper reason why you want to do, why you want to get healthier. If it's just about getting in the bathing suit, I promise it won't work. You might get in the bathing suit, but, you know, it might break or it might not last very long. There's always the deeper reason. And so get out of your body Get out of your mind that kind of justifies everything we do. And let's get down to our spirit, that uh, deeper inner connected being that you are, and see what it's telling you. It's, it's, it's still telling you no matter what, you're loved, you're a great person, you're wonderful, even if you're drinking, you know, cola. And it's also telling you, you can stop. You can moderate it. You could get in charge of it and lead it a little bit more. Everyone's going to have a trial. Everyone's going to have a challenge. Everyone. If your challenge are sugary drinks, okay. But no, that's not the real challenge. The real challenge is becoming the best you you can become. And you're not bad because you do it. You just, you need to figure it out. No matter what the addiction or no matter what the uh, the craving is, right? Interesting stuff, folks. That's the Coach's Corner. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, you know, with dozens of media outlets, American voters have had more than their fair share of options on political coverage this season. But, uh, you know, outlets like Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, they're all seeking to give us the latest report on the presidential election. However, according to our guest today, 
Dr. Justin Buchler, these party-aligned outlets make it difficult for voters to distinguish between valid criticism of one party and a biased reporting uh, from a partisan shill. And so we wanted to, to talk to him today about this dilemma that we're all facing and, and maybe the inability to trust any of the news we're hearing because we don't we can't distinguish. Is it partisanship or is it true, you know, effective, healthy reporting? Well, Dr. Justin Buchler joins us. He is um, a professor of political science at Case Western University, Reserve University, and he studies elections, political parties and Congress. And uh, he's going to help us through this uh, crazy partisan dilemma. Dr. Buchler, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Glad to be here. Great uh, topic. And again, just yesterday we were hearing reports about the trustworthiness of media dropping down. I think it's like 6% of uh, people trust media, which is, I guess, equivalent of Congress. Is, is What's going on in the media that the, that the trust is dropping so much and the confusion that you've been talking about is, is on the rise? Well, the trust and the confusion uh, issues are, I think, very different issues. The trust question uh, comes down to a couple of things. One, if you look at trust in any political institution over time over the last several decades, uh, the American public's trust has gone down. That's across the board any forms institution, which is part of a broader trend. The confusion is a separate issue, and the confusion is caused by, in my opinion, the proliferation of explicitly and sometimes implicitly partisan outlets. So if you look at the media landscape, you see a large number of outlets from cable news stations to uh, news sites online that cover things from a very distinctly partisan perspective. And the confusion from the voters' perspective is that the only way to tell the difference between valid criticism of one party and biased reporting is if you have some other way to assess information, which means the only people who are really capable of doing that are those of us who are really voracious news consumers, the people who are uh, reading just a little bit, watching just a little bit, it becomes very hard to tell. And since there are so many partisan outlets, if somebody criticizes the Democratic Party, it may be valid criticism or it might, may just be Fox News being Fox News. <laughs> if somebody criticizes the Republican Party, it may be valid criticism or it may just be people doing what MSNBC does. Right. If you don't have other sources of information, then from the voter's perspective, you can't really tell the difference. So I think the problem is that when voters discount one-sided criticism, they're actually being rational because if you don't have another way to tell what the truth is, then if you start with the premise that the parties are sort of equally balanced in all respects, then if somebody tells you otherwise, you're being rational to discount that. Mm. It, it is. It's a... It's a it's an issue too because I guess those three or four sites that uh, and networks that you were uh, citing I guess those are the most popular networks as well. Well, uh, on cable news, it's worth pointing out that most people don't get their information from cable news. Uh, Fox and MSNBC have very definite partisan perspectives, and uh, they have a 
relatively large audience compared to any one media outlet. But most people don't watch Fox News. Most people don't watch MSNBC. And I think that's not really the point, because the, the point I'm trying to make is not that uh, people get bad information from stations like Fox News and MSNBC, although that's true. The problem is that the existence of institutions like Fox News and MSNBC is that they constrain other news outlets. So even if you're talking about network nightly news that more people watch or uh, websites with a broad readership, those sites uh, and those outlets are constrained in what they can do by the existence of Fox and MSNBC. The existence of Fox and MSNBC make it rational for voters paying attention to other outlets Hmm. to discount one-sided criticism. So it's not that too many people watch Fox and MSNBC. It's that the existence of these kinds of stations make it, it, makes it difficult for viewers to distinguish valid criticism uh, from uh, partisan uh, uh, coverage when it comes from other outlets. Hmm. And they can't actually, because if another outlet... Uh, you know, goes and, and gathers more data and validates a story, they they can't, you're saying they can't, the average viewer or listener, they're not easily distinguishing if that's real data, real factual criticism, or if it's just biased. Um, basically, yes. And the problem is that most, uh, uh, most news consumers aren't going to go very far out of their way to check any one piece of information. Right. The problem is most news consumers are going to maybe read one story online, then they think they have the gist of it, and they don't read five more stories on the same topic to see how other outlets cover it. And from the perspective of uh, a news consumer just trying to gather information efficiently, uh, it doesn't it, – it, it, it defeats the purpose if you have to go and check five more news sources to try to figure out what the truth is. Hmm. What, what, um, what do you sense led to the shift? Because I guess a lot of this is just opinion-based journalism, um, which, which seems to be clouding up really the ethic of journalism. Well, I think that's part of it. I, I think it's a big part that we have so many partisan media outlets that that cover news in an opinion-based manner, because the existence of these outlets is what makes it rational for voters to discount any kind of one-sided criticism. Um, but I, I think the other factor here is journalistic norms. So journalists are expected to cover politics from a sort of neutral perspective in which they uh, assert that both parties are equally extreme, they're equally honest, they're equally dishonest, etc. So uh, journalists, if, if they break from that norm, they get lumped in with uh, the more opinion-based outlets. So if one candidate lies and the other tells the truth, the journalists can can do one of two things. They can either call the liar a liar or they can obey journalistic norms because journalistic norms require pretending that both candidates are always equally honest and equally dishonest. So the problem is that if one candidate lies, journalists can't point that out without breaking from journalistic norms. And those mm. journalistic norms uh, predate 
the modern media landscape. Those journalistic norms have been in existence for a long time, and they sort of date back to the muckraking era where we started to see journalism break away from the 19th century model where newspapers were basically party-owned operations. Hmm. So it was uh, then. The, then the journalists created these norms and said, "We're going to, I guess, live this different standard." And and then we've had another shift recently, right? The Drudge shift. I don't know what we call it, but the just the the mass proliferation of pseudo journalists and um, but also opinion opinion based journalism. Well, yes. Uh, so I I think it's it's the combination of all of these hmm. factors because. The uh, the journalistic norms on their own, if you didn't have the partisan media outlets, in principle, journalists could violate those norms, and that would simply be a signal to voters that politics are not really symmetric and that one party is doing something that breaks from political norms. Hmm. But once you add in the broad array of partisan outlets, and uh, opinion-based journalism, that combination is what makes it difficult for voters. Yeah, and uh, you, in your article um, in theconversation.com, you make a great point about lying that I, that I want to come back and talk t- uh, about because it, it really – it's an interesting thing. I mean Donald Trump can lie, Hillary Clinton can lie, and um, yet their lies may not be the same, and we, we don't even have a, a good uh, evaluation of that. So let's come back, uh, Justin. We're speaking with uh, Justin, uh, Dr. Justin Buechler um, from Case Western Reserve University. He's helping us sort through the journalist, uh, the, journalist, the journalist dilemma, which is trying to understand, boy, at what point do we, are we able to, to say what needs to be said and, and not necessarily appear as if we're just being a biased journalist? And, and is that confusing the audience, um, those that are reading and learning and, and watching these stories? It's an interesting problem that the media is facing and in, in turn that we're facing as a country. So stick with us. We'll continue this discussion about partisan media and its impact on all of us. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. On the line with us is uh, Dr. Justin Buechler. He's a professor of political science at Case Western Reserve University. He uh, is also um, has a great blog at uh, theunmutual.blogspot.com and uh, is the author of the book Hiring and Firing Public Officials, Rethinking the Purpose of Elections, that was uh, published by Oxford University Press. Dr. Buechler, welcome back. Thanks again for being with us. Glad to be here. This uh, one of the dilemmas that I guess is part of the the journalist dilemma is um, like pointing out lies and and catching. I guess if you actually brought out a fact that was really new and important to bring out as a journalist, I guess bringing that, that maybe is catching a, a, a politician, let's say, in a mistruth or a lie. 
Um, it, it it's just kind of gets lost, it sounds like, is your argument, and it gets muddied, because even if it's true and factual, it just gets either taken into being partisanship or or irrelevant. Yes, that that's basically the argument. I would say uh, muddied rather than lost. Yeah. And the basic problem is that the only uh, journalists, because journalists themselves are voracious consumers of information, they can, as long as they look past partisan blinders, figure out what's real, what's not, when somebody is just lying. But from the audience perspective, if you aren't the type of person who reads widely, then it gets hard to tell the difference. So I would say muddied rather than mm. lost. Well, and I, you give a great example of that in your article um, with the debate in 2012 with Mitt Romney when Candy Crowley kind of jumped in and corrected a statement that Mitt had made, um, yeah. which which factually seemed accurate, um, but uh, had major blowback, didn't she? Yeah. Well, I mean, what happened uh, was Mitt Romney had made a statement about uh, what happened after Benghazi that the Obama administration had not called uh, it an act of terrorism. And in fact, in the press conference immediately after, Afterwards, Barack Obama did call it terrorism, uh, but this is one of these myths that got bandied around on uh, Fox News and other Republican outlets. And it, it, it's hard to tell whether or not Mitt Romney actually believed it, but there's video clip, and when Mitt Romney said it uh, during the debate, Candy Crowley uh, interrupted and pointed out that there was actually video contradicting Mitt Romney's statement. And what happened in the aftermath was that Republicans decided that they couldn't have Candy Crowley moderating debate. And from the journalist perspective, Candy Crowley actually was violating norms of how debates are moderated mm. in a very serious way. But she was put in this position where she could do one of two things. She could either allow a lie to stand or she could violate journalistic norms in a very direct way, uh, and she chose the latter, which means that she will never again be allowed hmm. to moderate a debate. Right. Because what what each side wants in a debate moderator is somebody who is going to obey journalistic norms. And Kenny Crowley violated journalistic norms in favor of correcting something that was a falsehood. Hmm. So there's the dilemma. Right. I mean, yes, what's your role yeah. and, and what role yeah, do they want to yeah. play? Wow. And that's exactly right. And there's no out. I mean, one of the things you mentioned is there's no there's no solution to this, apparently. Well, I, I don't want to say there is no solution, but I will say that I can't figure one out. <laughs> and the, the, I, the basic problem is uh, that from a uh maybe weekly informed voters perspective it is rational to discount one-sided criticism as long as there are partisan media outlets out there uh it it's probably not accurate to say there is no solution because we did see the development of uh of muckraking journalism come out of a tradition in which newspapers were party owned so we have seen in the past transitions from uh, what we might call biased journalism into a more neutral, objective form of journalism. 
but it took a fundamental transformation of the media landscape. It took moving from newspapers being party-owned to newspapers being independent outlets. Mm. And that was a dramatic transformation in the basic structure of the media. Um, So in principle, it may be possible for media structures to change. I just don't know how. How do you sort through it? Do you do you have specific sites you go to that you feel are more neutral, more objective? Or do you just try to to read everything? I, I, yeah, I try to get news from a variety of sources, but uh, I have an advantage having already read a lot. And this is the basic point that those of us who are really uh, uh, active news consumers, those of us who read the news obsessively, uh, are better able to figure out what is biased and what is not. And uh, by getting news from a variety of sources, uh, it's easier to see the patterns and sort out what is true from what is not true. It's just that that takes a lot of time. Mm. I spend probably several hours a day every day just reading news, and I do that because it's my job. Most people don't have the time to put into that. Mm. Is what would you what would you suggest if you were being called in, you know, to some of these uh, organizations to consult with them? What would you suggest to the organization to kind of to um, play the role better of journalism? Um, I I think it there's no good answer. I think that for journalists who try to both obey journalistic norms and uh, uh, point out the truth uh, when politics aren't necessarily symmetric. I think that the best they can do is try to, uh, uh, how do I put this? So in the the academic paper that was the basis for the conversation piece, uh, I used as uh, an example debate negotiations over the debt ceiling and what happens when you have a uh, negotiation between two parties and one party makes asymmetric demands. And in that case, if the journalists are unable to point out when one party is making asymmetric demands, then that party can get away with making asymmetric demands. So in the academic uh, version of the paper, uh, what I suggest is that it is possible for journalists to simply describe the demands being made by each party so that somebody who is at least thinking about the news can draw an inference without that inference being directly stated. Hmm. Um, that's, that, that is a solution that is specifically tailored to situations like negotiation of the debt ceiling when it's possible that one party makes asymmetric demands. When it comes to pointing out a lie, I think it's harder, because when it comes to pointing out a lie, um, there isn't a lot of nuance. <laughs> no. You're, you're uh, kind of stating it, right? You're like, I guess, yeah. couldn't you just state uh, so-and-so says this and so-and-so from the State Department shows this? I mean, just the, can't you yeah. just show the discrepancy and let it well, you fester? Can show the discrepancy, but, but the, the more passively you do it, the more it comes down to sounding like he said, she said. Uh-huh, exactly. And yeah. The pro- yeah, and the problem is that if you cover a lie in a he said, she said mode, then 
you're not actually pointing out that the lie is a lie. Mm-hmm. And boy, the journalist dilemma again. You, like yes, what? That's the journalist's dilemma. And, and wow. And the funny thing is, is we're all just watching, not even paying attention, you know, to to see this at this level. Um, but I guess what it also does, and one of the things you po- posited in your article is it might be setting us up for journalists to be lying even more. Not journalists, sorry, politicians, people in the yeah. media are just lying more because they can't be distinguished. Um, I think that's that's a danger because if you always have the option of uh, saying that what any journalist who criticizes you is a shill for your opponent. Yeah. And if that criticism is likely to be believed by voters, then there's no disincentive to lying. True, huh? And it, yeah, it's all, but it's also worth pointing out. Uh, what I think is kind of paradoxical about this is that uh, it's not that Fox News enables Republicans to lie and MSNBC enables Democrats to lie. It's the other way around. Uh, Fox News enables Republic, or Democrats to lie because anytime somebody accuses a Democrat of lying, the Democrat can say, oh, that's just people acting yeah. like Fox News. A right-wing Fox conspiracy. Right. And, and, and the flip side of that is MSNBC enables the Republicans uh, to lie because they can talk about left-wing journalism. And, and since MSNBC is real, news consumers won't necessarily be able to tell the difference between valid criticism sure. from a neutral journalist and the kind of thing that you would get if you turned on MSNBC. Wow, just because I've got to ask you this now. So we we already have the journalist dilemma that's been going on for years now, apparently, and then we insert Donald Trump. Like, I mean, it, yeah. what what does that do to you? Because it really it seems like he is the master, probably, of taking advantage of this current state of the media. Um, well, possibly, but because uh, he knows I how to say so really, much. Yes. Well, I mean, so there are a couple of issues with Donald Trump. One is uh, that his lies are really big lies. I mean, he became a political figure by peddling conspiracy theories about Obama's birth certificate, which is total nonsense. And that's how he became a major political figure. Uh, the other thing is he lies so consistently, so so often that uh that any journalist trying to cover Donald Trump in, in an objective way just gets buried under so much nonsense that it's impossible to point out uh, all of the dishonesty in it. Yeah. But there's another there, there's another issue with Donald Trump, which is that uh, we've never seen a presidential candidate more hated by the media. Uh, journalists really, truly detest him. He treats journalists very poorly. Uh, we've seen what happens if a journalist ever challenges him. I, we, we saw what happened to Megyn Kelly. Right. And that this creates a level of hostility towards Donald Trump among uh, journalists that might actually uh, convince enough journalists to uh, treat him differently. But, of course, if they treat him differently, the flip side is John, Donald Trump can then say that the media are all left get him and mm-hmm. he's right. And, 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 re, and stir the pot. And then again, like you were saying, it, it really makes it so 
Um, it also confuses the Hillary Clinton side of the race um, because now her lies are different than his lies, whose lies are worse. But we now we don't know. We don't know if they're they are lying because of the partisanship. And it just adds more confusion, doesn't it? Um, yeah, and and uh, the the structure of the system could it, it it could enable and even incentivize Hillary Clinton to lie more because mm. and she's she's a politician. Politicians are frequently uh, dishonest, but uh, if if one's opponent is Donald Trump, uh, you can get away with a lot more dishonesty <laughs> simply because by comparison. Anybody looks honest. That's true. Uh, so uh, Donald Trump really does uh, confuse uh, the process, and journalists don't know how to deal with him because he, he he really does lie more brazenly and more often, and it's impossible to point that out without violating norms. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And add to that. And add to that then the fact that journalists really do hate Donald Trump so much that they really will be out to get him. <laughs> and Donald Trump can say there's a media conspiracy, right. and he'd almost be right. That's right. Well, and and yeah, and still beat him up. Yeah, right. powerful. Wow, interesting insight. Uh, Dr. Justin Buecher, thanks so much for being with us. Glad to do it. Powerful insight. Um, confusing, huh, folks? It's the dilemma. The journalist's dilemma, right? But then all of a sudden, too, it's it becomes our dilemma. Who do you trust? Who who really do you think you can believe in? It's confusing, isn't it? And uh, boy, is it just going to be more and more lies because we're so confused? Who knows? Stick with us, folks. We'll continue the discussion uh, after this break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Boy, how do you how do you know who to trust? For heaven's sakes, you can't you can't necessarily trust the media. And isn't it sad? Even the media, the journalists that are just trying to be journalists and objective and and follow the journalistic standard, right? They're they're going to get beat up for not necessarily reporting a lie. Or, you know, just trying to remain neutral. Or you're going to beat up the opposing, you know, partisan journalist, the one that doesn't or that does report stuff that uh, doesn't jive with your candidate. So what what part, as you think about this, are you? What part of this are you, the listener, the voter? What part of this dilemma of, you know, maybe even fostering a situation where our politicians can lie more and more to us and we actually care less? What part of that do you play? Oh, now you're blaming me, Matt. Always blaming me. Yeah, well, if you don't care, why would they need to be honest? If you don't read enough to discern what the truth is. Why would anybody need to be honest? And in the end, that's your responsibility. That's my responsibility. That's our responsibility. We've got to care. 
And we just sit here and we joke about it all the time on the show. But this political process is getting crazy. And if it comes down to Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, holy cow. Uh, Hillary Clinton's been claiming a right-wing conspiracy for 20-something years. So we don't have to believe any negative journalism on her, right? Because it's just obviously the right wing. And can you imagine what Donald Trump would say about Hillary Clinton? And who's going to actually sort that out? And what might just happen is I guess we're going to get so mad and frustrated with these people that we're just going to what? Donald Trump's going to say, I mean, he's already saying that uh, the Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill is just pure political correctness. So he throws that out there and all of the liberal media are like, oh, and they collapse on him. And he's like, see, just a bunch of liberals wanting political correctness. Folks, you're going to have to sort through it. And again, it doesn't matter your who you want. If you want Ted Cruz, it doesn't matter. The problem's going to be the same. Right-wing conspiracy versus left-wing conspiracy. How many times have the media been booed in the debates? Which tells us that uh, the media is in this weird polarized situation. Because of partisan media, a really good journalist never gets listened to. We don't hear them. And they, until, you know, something really happens, you're not going to hear the truth. Um, so pay attention to it. And don't just fall prey to, to what the journalists are saying, but use your mind. Sort it out. You don't need to go read the news two hours a day, but you, you should be skeptical of everything you're hearing. And weigh it. Balance it on what you know to be true and go find some real good sources that you trust. Go find your favorite journalist that you do trust and follow them. Anyway, we'll take a break, folks. That's hour number one of the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. There's good. You just got to gotta sift through some bad to get there. We'll take a break, folks. We'll come back. By the way, happy high five day. High five. Go give somebody a high five today. Uh, Ben's sticking out his hand to give me a high five. We'll do it later, Ben. Uh, we'll take a break, folks. Thanks. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Well, we just heard some, some wonderful advice about how to rethink your thinking. And there's something inherent and I think essential uh, as all of us. The, what we're assuming then is that we have a choice on our thinking. But what the good doctor Stephen Hayes was just teaching us is you only have a choice if you if you recognize the choice. If you wait too long and allow the thought to just, you know, jump in the sled and start its way down the hill, there's a point that you're not going to turn that around. The speed's going to pick up and uh, the grooves may already be cut for the sled and you're just going to follow the last 500 paths that you've taken. If you want to create the new thought, you have to eventually recognize the stinking thinking. You got to recognize where it's uh, where you're having the thought that maybe you don't want to have. And a key point is don't 
don't freak out about it, right? Don't get so caught up like, I got to stop, I got to stop it, oh my heavens. Because I think that very energy, that emotion, is what's going to drive the thought more chemical. Remember, your thoughts bring chemistry. So if I ask you to think of somebody that hurt you or offended you as a child, can you think of somebody? Can you think of somebody that made you feel less than or demeaned or somebody who hurt your feelings in high school or junior high? If you can still remember the thought and have the feelings, it's because thoughts have feelings and chemistry and recipes of chemistry associated with each thought. Those thoughts are stored. They're called scripts. And once you, once you kind of inject emotion into a thinking pattern, like somebody that is sinning, doing something that they believe they shouldn't be doing or knowing they shouldn't be doing, they might start building every time they do an act, look at something they shouldn't look at, they might then create a reaction like, oh, man, God's going to be mad. I'm so bad. I'm, and they get in and they take all of that emotion and they pile it back onto the thought. And it just keeps compounding the issue, compounding it, digging it deeper, making it deeper, harder to get out of. So at some point, we don't need you to beat yourself up. I I honestly believe if your God, if he were sitting next to you when you committed that mistake or that sin or whatever you want to call it, your God wouldn't just sit there and induce a lot of horrible feelings on you. Your God would just love you, right? And bring some peace to you. (sighs) Not that you're perfect, but that you're loved. And once you could probably feel that feeling that you're loved, then we can go and evaluate the thought. And you might start to recognize that before the thought, there was a a subtle pre-thought feeling. One of the things that we've been taught a lot uh, from some of the professors here at BYU about, for example, pornography addiction is that two of the biggest drivers of the addiction are anxiety and uh, boredom. So if you have a little anxiety on board, that may create the thought that maybe we ought to go do looking, go start looking at some porn, which then creates feelings, which then drives action. Or boredom. Hey, there's nothing going on here. Maybe I ought to go look at that thing. That, And then off we go. Part of what we want to do is not just add on a ton of negativity and a a bunch of guilt and pain. What we might want to do is just recognize what is the pre-thought, what are the thoughts you have, and then, like our good doctor was telling us, maybe turn it into a song, maybe make it funnier, maybe do something to, you know, get rid of the emotional tension so we don't just gang up and drive these things deeper. Anyway, it's just an idea, right? But it's an idea that can make us better. Know that your thoughts are driven by your echoes of your history. And those echoes aren't going away, but they are yours. You're here on this earth to act and not just be acted upon, even by your history that was misunderstood by a five-year-old boy. It's time to act. Let's start trying. Start making fun of our thoughts a bit. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. When you think about it, if everybody has some reason to be a little messed up, right? If you, we got our parents to blame. We, you know, we've got people in our world around us to blame. We have 
you know, somebody in our childhood that hurt us or harmed us. So then you look at these foster care kids who really don't have any control. They, they, it's not like they can just be positive and think their way out of this. They have a hole that they're digging and they need to get out of it. And sometimes they just need you. So seriously, go evaluate if there's some way you could get involved, um, whether time, money, energy, whatever you've got, uh, it makes a difference. I used to do a lot of training where I would take these families and, and just help them strengthen their marriages, their relationships to make sure that they were learning, you know, good communication skills so that it wasn't destroying a marriage as they were fostering and caring for these kids. Um, one of the things that I have found is is key to parenting as I coach a lot of parents and I coach a lot of kids is uh, there's a few tricks about helping our kids believe in themselves. Um, a lot of talk is, is thrown out there about self-esteem and kids need to have self-esteem and understand their own um, – their own sense of who they are and and what they what they bring to this world, and, and I think that's true. Except what they also I believe need is uh, just they just need to know they're that they that they're cared for that they're worth something, and I don't know. We got to be careful as we are working with our families and our kids and our younger folks, our young adults, the uh, those just graduating maybe from high school that we need to validate their worth not just their works, right? Like we talk a lot about what our kid did and when he's graduating from high school, yeah, he graduated from high school. He he was, you know, um, valedictorian, top of his class. And we talk about all of these accomplishments. But as soon as we're tying our child's worth to their accomplishments, we might be setting them up for something. Because uh, most kids aren't valedictorian, right? There's one of those per class. So there's 500 that aren't. And yet, if that's what we keep seeing that everyone talks about, we start getting the social mirror reflecting back on us saying, you're not quite cutting it. We want to validate people's worths. And their worth is not just their works. It's not just their touchdown or their looks or their fame or the money they make. You know what it might also be is just... Their, their work ethic, their, their sense of um, care for others, they, um, their inherent value just simply because they're loved by a God, right? And so validate worth, not just works. Don't get caught up on outcomes only. A lot of parents are, and it, it sets your children up to not necessarily value themselves. Another rule is to encourage your kids by understanding them, right? Encourage by itself means that we get within the heart of another. So do you even know what your child's goals are? I have parents come in all the time and they tell me, I don't, my kids won't listen to me. Well, they won't listen to you because you don't seem to care what's in their heart. Well, of course I do. Well, not if you're always telling them what to do. So when it comes to your kids, if you really want to encourage them, you got to listen a lot more than you're speaking. And that ex- that by letting them express, even if their expression you don't like or is it you know it frustrates you or it's not motivated enough, 
It doesn't matter. Let them express. Shine a light on their strengths. Identify what they are good at. Go figure out. Take these strengths assessments we talk about on the show all the time um, and go learn about what they're good at. What are their character strengths? And there's we've talked about it on the show recently with Fatima Doman and her strengths program. So if you just go look up our our um, our uh, what are they called? Our podcast. That's it. Go look up our podcast and listen to them, folks, and go figure out what your kid's strengths are. Is is he intuitive? Is he hardworking? Is he social skills? Is he spiritual? And once you know what their strengths are, help them identify daily when they're progressing. Don't just look for where they're not progressing, which is so easy to critique. Why is your room such a mess? Man, you're reading a lot since you got out of school. Why are you reading so much? Talk about what they're doing well. Because if you pinpoint the progress and you know what their strengths are, you might start helping them believe in themselves. Heaven forbid. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is part of the problem. That is some of the anger, the frustration you see in middle America. And it seems like the middle America kind of blue collar worker might be a little more pro-Trump, I guess. Who knows exactly. But uh, the younger America, pro-Bernie. Some are frustrated seeing a politician uh, or politicians like the Clintons be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, just seems weird. That's uh, This is based on what Rana was teaching us. Maybe this is why so many people want to see Hillary Clinton's uh, transcripts, right, to what she said to these organizations that are taking 25 percent of the money of our economy. And – Maybe the same reason why they want to see what Donald's been doing on his taxes. People are mad. (sighs) And we've got to somehow take our country back when it comes to our, our businesses, our economy. We are so into, you know, eat, drink and be merry. Just fatten yourself up and tomorrow will be fine. But uh, it doesn't it doesn't seem like that. It seems like we might be setting ourselves up for another fall when a tiny percentage of Americans have enough savings to cover their bills for three months when like five percent, maybe 10 percent of America could cover their three months of bills if, if they stopped working today. That's scary. If everyone else is living paycheck to paycheck. We need some tough love. And the problem is we keep looking to leaders to do it. And I think the we might be giving our leadership way too much um, – what's the word? Respect? <laughs> we might be thinking that our, our Congress people are going to solve some of this stuff. And they obviously can't, especially if the legislation is being written by the companies and the organizations that are um, – that are – benefiting. So this is our deal. This is our issue. And what I would love to have happen, we need a little tough love. Okay. So there's there's a story I found on CNN about a dad who sells his disrespectful son's SUV on Craigslist. Okay. He's just had it. He's fed up with his son smoking weed and acting all thug-like, a Florida dad uh, said. So he sold his teen's SUV on Craigslist. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. 
And he agreed to take $250 off the price if the buyer lived in the area just so his son would see the vehicle every now and then to remind him of how good he had it. Now, is that just a petty dad? No, no, it's not. It's a smart dad. I'd take 500 off if you could get a neighbor to buy it. And let the son see that you can't treat people like that. He wrote on Craigslist, I have my son's truck up for sale that I bought for him as his first car. He thinks it's cool to drive around with his friends smoking dope and acting all thug, especially not showing me and my wife the respect we deserve. This was a vehicle to finish school in, get a decent job and get a head start in life, but chose to throw it all away because his friends would rather have an influence on him than me. He'd rather have his friends have an influence on him more than I do. Now he can't uh, put those Jordans to use. Now now he can put the Jordans to use and walk, um, you know, they're a little swear word there, Uh, walk his blank off on the way to school. The truck's nice. It has ice cold air, power, everything. It's it's dirty inside, but, you know, with somebody with a little pride and respect can clean that right up. So it's on sale. And maybe that's what we need is somebody to come in and just whip us and just take us out and say, I mean, do we need another economic collapse? Or can you do something about it? Just ask yourself, what can you do about it? If your answer is nothing, then we got to rethink, right? And keep listening. We'll find ways. One way is to stay informed. Another way is to vote. And if you're frustrated with voting on the national level, vote on the local level. Look at your Congress people. They're having a huge impact on your life. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, do you ever wish you had the nerves of steel of Jack Bauer? Or the observation skills of Sherlock Holmes. Or perhaps the adventurous spirit of Frodo Baggins. You know, we all have heroes in literature, movies, and video games. There are characters who have attributes and skills that we all wish we had. And our guest today, Steve Cam, is the author of Level Up Your Life, a book that talks about how to become your own superhero. He joins us now. Uh, Mr. Cam, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Matt, thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you. Now, first of all, uh, talk to us a little bit about your love of these video games, the love of the movies, and your concept of leveling up. Sure. Well, I think I like to say as, as, a, as a kid, I was raised by two loving parents and a Nintendo Entertainment System. <laughs> I, was, uh, I, I was born right around that time when the original Nintendo came out. And ever since then, I've just been captivated by this idea of watching a character from a far-off land uh, kind of grow up and, and go through uh, this kind of transformative journey and become this amazing, amazing character that, that does uh, life-changing things, saves the world, saves the princess, saves the prince, saves themselves, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's been something that I've, just, I've, I've truly fallen in love with. And in addition to that, uh, you know, I found myself more and more often escaping into games and books and movies, you know, like Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter, Hunger Games, and imagining myself as that character. And a few years ago, I realized I was spending more and more time kind of drifting through life and, and, and spending more, more of my free time waiting to just get back into those imaginary worlds. 
and eventually came to the realization that life is happening outside of a screen and outside of a book. Mm. And in order for me to to do the things that I've always said I wanted to do but hadn't accomplished, I had to start thinking like those characters. And I, I kind of transformed my life into a video game and drew inspiration and, and education, really, from those same characters and have since gone on to travel the world, learn to play music instruments, uh, get stronger and healthier than I've ever been. And it's been a really fun journey along the way. And you did it. I mean, this is, I think, awesome because how many kids do I know that love video games and, you know, they they have to kind of level up. Like in your article, you talk about the fact that you might start out with a cloth tunic and a rusted dagger, and eventually <laughs> you're going to make your way to, you know, having some other powerful source or forces and other skills and tools and be more advanced. Most of the kids I know would love to just start at level 50, and that's kind of what they all want to be. But in reality, like you're saying, you just got to start at level one and just keep leveling up. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting, actually. There's this great concept out there from, uh, in behavioral psychology called the progress principle. And it's the idea that we as humans love to make progress. If you've ever played a game like Candy Crush or yeah. Mario or World of Warcraft, and you just say, oh, one more level, oh, I'll kill one more bad guy, oh, I'll solve one more puzzle, uh, it's because our brains are wired to love this idea of showing ourselves incremental progress. Uh, same thing like if you've ever put together a, you know, a tabletop puzzle. Anytime you get those puzzle pieces connected, like your brain releases a chemical called dopamine that makes you feel happy, and you chase it, which is why video games have become so addicting for so many. So I thought, why don't we, why don't we turn our life into the game and create a, level, a system of levels and missions and quests for us to complete? And as we complete those things, we can actually cross those goals off, earn experience points, and level up and get that same addictive kind of happiness release in our brain, but have it be as a result of not us sitting on a couch, but rather us out in the world exploring or us trying something new, uh, doing something that scares us, uh, getting healthier, visiting a new location, trying to cook a new meal or something along those lines. That's great. And really, it, it, it then it becomes the game of life, right? The game of your life. <laughs> exactly. How great. Yes, exactly. I've, I've, I've been living this game for... Uh, a few years now, and I can tell you it's a lot more exciting than any video game I've ever played. Yeah, and yeah, and in the end, you know, if you do it right, you might have some money to go buy more games. <laughs> right. Exactly. So. I, I had to swear off video games for a few years to Did get you? things organized, and now I have a good balance of I play games occasionally, but I've still, you know, I'm learning to play the violin at the moment. I'm trying to figure out where to travel to next, and setting some great goals in the gym and, and things along those lines. But it, it really required me to take an active approach of. How am I living my life, and how can I take those same things I used to love on a screen and kind of like retroactively build my life around them and mm. uh, make them things that I can do day to day? Well, so talk to the parents out there. I mean, I imagine a parent that's whose their kids love video games, and to try to convince the kid that the real world life could be just as exciting as the on screen life. What would you say to that parent to teach their kids that principle? Sure. Well, that's, I think first and foremost is understanding that video games inherently are not are not bad. No. I, I personally I love them. I think they're, I've, I've learned a lot about grit and determination and, and perseverance and, and teamwork and things like that. So I think there's plenty of aspects of video games that are phenomenal. And if if your child loves to play them, uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily you know remove them from the house or say you know, you're not allowed to play them. However, I think it's important to talk to your kid and say what is it about this game that you love. 
and and sit down and say like, hey, is there any way we can uh, we can try to do this in real life? Uh, just to share an example, you know, in this book, Level Up Your Life, I wanted to prove to other people that it's not just something for a guy like me, but for anybody. You know, I share stories of single parents and and uh, retired couples and things like that who have gamified their lives. There's one gentleman I share. His name is Thomas. He is a construction foreman, but he fell in love with this. Uh, Japanese comic about a, a single dad and his son. And Thomas is a single dad, and he ended up creating a series of quests and missions for him and his son to complete uh, in martial arts. So when they get together on weekends to spend their quality time together, they've gamified that in a fun way. So they're not only spending time together, but they're taking concept from a game and, or a comic that they've loved and also getting physical activity mm. and proving to themselves the progress principle that they, they can make progress in martial arts and have a lot of fun together doing it too. That's great. And I mean, I, I've seen just with raising my own kids that turning it into a game makes it so it doesn't seem so formal. Right. It's like it's not this it's not as real. And it's it's almost like they like my kids don't even know we're talking if we're playing a game while we're doing it. But I could I can get a lot of information out of them. Oh, I love it. And I think I think when you can disguise I, I not 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 I mean disguise, but rather, you know, when exercise becomes something that's enjoyable purely for the fun of it, mm. you know, be it uh, a martial art or, or learning to dance, gymnastics, um, uh, whatever it parkour, whatever it may be, something fun that, that gets the kid excited and engaged and it doesn't feel like exercise to them, I think they can get hooked on that. And if you can then combine that with some sort of fun leveling system, and it can be very basic. You know, I, I, What I said was every time I completed five quests, that was enough for me to level up and move on to my next uh, my next challenge or level my character up, me being the character in this game. Yeah. And then we're, I guess, talk, talk about how you made your own transition. So you were sitting there thinking, I get, I'm, I'm doing, I'm spending too much time on video games. And is that how, is that how it started? Is you just became aware that you're, you're not going <laughs> yeah, anywhere? Believe it or believe it or not. So there's this great concept in, in uh, called the hero's journey. It's the idea that every great story in history follows a very similar story arc. There's a character that, you know, receives some sort of call to action and it's either thrust upon them or they make a decision. And then they go on this extraordinary journey where they encounter challenges and uh, recruit allies, defeat bad guys and return home a changed person. For me, my call to action was, was actually that my homemade computer, you know, that I had built, uh, blew up on me oh, boy. and I couldn't afford to fix it. And I didn't have enough money to, to fix it, to get back to playing more video games. And that was kind of like my call to action on my journey hmm. to say like, all right, man, this is that moment for you. You can't play these games anymore. You have to, let's, let's, figure out what's going on here and kind of like analyze my life. So I thought to all those games and all those movies and, you know, just uh, for an example, I grew up loving James Bond. So mm. I was like, what would it be like to live a weekend like James Bond? And I was like, well, I'm clearly not going to become an international spy, but I bet there's a fun way that I could live like James Bond for a weekend. So I got very specific with it and it, it ended up with me in a tuxedo in the Monte Carlo Casino mm. in the Principality of Monaco for a weekend. And I did it all very cheap, very bare bones, but on the outside it looked like I was uh, actually looked and I felt like I was James Bond. So, you know, I had a lot of fun kind of reverse engineering my characters and movies and heroes and seeing if I could come up with a real world equivalent of those things and then just put systems in place uh, in place that I talk about throughout the book. Mm. Uh, put systems in place to actually get me to start crossing those things off. That's great. Is that and that's what you call gamifying? You you <laughs> yeah, turned exactly. your life into the game. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think the the issue many people have is they everybody says, oh, I wish I could travel more, or oh, I'd love to mm-hmm. learn how to do so-and-so, but they never get specific with it, and they don't have the right systems or support you know, support group in place to make those things happen. So I got very specific with my goals. I kind of manufactured my my life around those things so that every day I was working towards uh, whether it was saving money for my next trip or spending just five minutes working on a language or learning an instrument. But I got very specific and put a system in place so that those things became a daily habit for me to improve. And I got addicted to improving myself. And, uh, you know, it went from this vague, nebulous idea of like, oh, I want to travel to, no, I'm going to live like James Bond uh, in Monaco. I'm going to find Nemo on the Great Barrier Reef. (laughs) I'm going to learn to play the violin and travel to Ireland. I'm going to uh, volunteer once a week for a year to, you know, to to give back, whatever it may be. I think everybody lives life differently. And there's no reason why you can't create a game that lines up with what you're interested in, be it fitness or you know, dance, cooking, volunteering, travel, whatever it may be, uh, it, it just comes down to getting specific with it and putting the right pieces in the, in the right place. Oh, that's amazing. And, and then I guess then you eventually then put it into the book um, that we're talking about, which is basically, uh, it's called Le- Level Up Your Life, How to Unlock Adventure and Happiness by Becoming the Hero of Your Own Story. Yes. Yeah. So I, throughout the book, it's, it's, I share my story. I share some examples and very specific instructions on how to start kind of converting your life into a game or a movie. Uh, and then, like I said earlier, I, I share a ton of stories throughout the book from people of all walks of life and all economic backgrounds, uh, you know, whether it's college kids or uh, recently unemployed, recently divorced, uh, older people with children, whatever it may be, I share stories from each of those different examples to show you like, hey, I don't care how old you are or where you come from. I'm just more interested in helping you get to where you want to go and helping you get there and in the most fun, enjoyable, uh, challenging, you know, exciting way as possible. That's great. Steve, let's take a break and come back, continue this journey. I'd love to find out when we come back, uh, what are some other steps that we can take um, to, to kind of level up our, our lives. Uh, one of the things I love is how you set up our characters and how we can kind of design the character we want to be in life. Uh, Steve Cam is his name. The, the name of his book is Level Up Your Life, and uh, it's a book that talks about how to become our own superhero, also to kind of go live out our, our dreams and make our wildest dreams, I guess, come true. Also, he um, runs a website called nerdfitness.com, nerdfitness.com is a great resource to go get all of the information as well about what Steve is doing. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion. Stick with us, folks, helping you uh, really, truly reignite that superhero inside of you and take your life back. We'll be right back. Stick with us. Welcome back, everybody, to The Matt Townsend Show. Today we are talking about how you can use your favorite video games and movies to level up your life and really go out there and, and find this, this, this inner you, this, this uh, inner superhero, this inner video game character, and, and really bring it to life in your own life. Joining us is Steve Cam. He is the author of the book Level Up Your Life, How to Unlock Your Adventure and Happiness, by becoming the hero of your own story. And uh, Steve also has a great website you might want to go check out called nerdfitness.com, where you can also get a lot of information about 
what what he does and and see some of his great uh, work with his book and his blogs. Steve, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me stick around. This is it's. A, I think it's a really empowering idea. I mean, a, a lot of people are moved by media, right? By their video games or by their um, by by the movies they see. And you made a great point where we sometimes disconnect from kind of that world and our real world. We don't see how we could ever go create a life like that. And yet you're saying you can, you just need to become intentional about it. I think intention is, is one of the most important things. So, you know, recently it's been kind of superhero movies are, are in thanks to Marvel and, and this upcoming weekend with Batman and first Superman coming out. You know, I think so many people are probably going to wander out of a theater and say, man, wouldn't it be cool to be Batman or, Oh, wouldn't it be awesome to be Superman? And, and more often than not, people have that, that conversation with their friends, like, Oh, I'd love to fly or I'd love to do this or that. Or they watch James Bond or they play a game. And I, I was that guy. I was, I was a daydreamer. You know, I, I went to work at a job I didn't love and, and came home and sat on my couch and, and escaped more often than not into another game, another movie, and, and daydreamed about what those things were like. And eventually I got to the point where I realized that life had to be lived and I had to do it with intention. And the only intention or like the only path that I knew were the things that, that helped raise me. Those heroes, Super Mario, Leg- uh, Link from the Legend of Zelda, Captain America, Superman, those are the characters that, that taught me the lessons I needed to learn about growing up. So I, 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 not knowing any better, I was like, let's just let's, let's try to take those things and, and turn them into, turn myself into a character like those guys and, and see what happened. And it's turned into this kind of whirlwind, crazy journey of uh, globetrotting adventures and, and challenging myself with things that, that, that scare the heck out of me. And uh, it, I've met a lot of really great people along the way as well. It's been so much fun. Yeah. And, and you, I guess one of the things that you talk about in the article on lifehacker.com is the idea that, you know, just like in the movies or just like on the video game, we have a character that we play. And you're, you're saying that we, we need to decide what our character is going to be. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, it's funny. I, I wrote this book from like the perspective of a skeptical nerd, because that's who I am. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I understand there are certain books out there where it's like, oh, just believe it and it will happen. And I looked at it from the perspective of, okay, like, let's get very scientific and dig into the nitty gritty on this stuff. And, and can you actually do this realistically? Can you turn yourself into a character? And, uh, you know, I, I thought about the, my favorite characters from those, from those uh, stories that I loved growing up. And I realized that they all had dual existences. Uh, for example, you know, Superman is by day, he's a mild mannered reporter mm. and, uh, Indiana Jones is a archeology span professor during the day. And I thought it was kind of neat. Like here we have these world, you know, world traveling, all powerful superheroes that also have day to day responsibilities and bills to pay and things to take care of in the real world. And then they have this alter ego version of themselves that, that do amazing things. And I was like, that, that lines up perfectly with how I want to live my life. I have bills to pay. I have a, a, an apartment to keep clean. I have friends to hang out with, ob- obligations to take care of. But there's also this other part of me that wants to travel and learn and grow and, and do things that maybe the regular version of me is afraid to try. So why don't I create a superhero version of myself? And I encourage people through, uh, actually, if you go to levelupyourlife.com, you can create your own character. Uh, it's completely free. And you can decide, write your origin, like your backstory. Everybody loves the, the 
you know, the, the backstory of, of why, how a superhero came to be. Right. It's, I think it's really fun for people to kind of get very creative and, and have some fun with creating the backstory of what their alter ego is and then deciding what that alter ego wants to become, like what kind of character they want to be, what kind of story do they want to play out. And, and once you make those decisions, then it's, it, then it's simply putting one foot in front of the other or identifying that, that first quest or mission that this alter ego version of you, you know, that might have to work after school or after work or before your kids wake up in the morning. What is it, what's the quest or mission that you're working on for that particular day? Hmm. I mean, I, so I taught forever leadership and time management and the importance of making a mission statement. And it's the exact same thing that you're talking about and understanding your roles and your goals. And you're doing the exact same thing. You're just actually making it relate to where these people already have been, where they've already been <laughs> fantasizing, Absolutely. where their mission has already, you know, been fulfilled in a way. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, some people are like, well, you started this website called nerd fitness do you realize that you know down the road when marvel got big and superheroes got in great shape like this whole idea <laughs> of being nerdy and fit is now in i was like i you know i started this eight years ago or i bought the domain i think nine years ago because that's that's my that's my world those yeah. are my people like i play video games and i want to help people get healthy so you know these these i didn't i didn't like oh this is a, a clever way to do this so this is the only way i knew how to do it because these that. are the guys that raised me these are the characters that that help shape who i am as a person and it made sense to give them an opportunity to help shape the kind of the next version of me too uh which is this you know superhero alter ego version that that does amazing things that the regular me would be scared to try right well and like you're saying you don't need to maybe you don't need to go try to like Superman reverse the spin of the earth, uh, that might be harder to accomplish, but, but like, you, difficult, yeah. yeah, but you went and you did go to Monaco and you became bond and you wore a tux and you saw Monaco and you hanged out, the, you were hanging out there for a week being the man. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, when I, when I say find adventure and I think adventure is something that's like, inherent or like in our dna mm -hmm. as a as a human species like we just always want to know like hey what's over that hill or what's uh what's you know what's under that lake or what's behind that cave which is what i loved about uh video games i, I just found it was so i think for everybody it, adventure means something different for me it meant going to monaco and living like james bond or going to machu picchu in peru for somebody else if they've never traveled before it might be as simple as camping in their backyard with their kid or visiting the next state over to attend a swing dance competition that they're terrified to, to be a part of. Mm. It's, it's those things that make you feel alive, that remind you, like, hey, today is a great day to be on this planet, and, uh, you know, something that kind of reminds you why, why you're lucky to be here. Uh, whatever that means for you, I think that's, that's adventure. And that's which is why we all get that. So that's the great part about this game called life. We can all play it in a different way. Adventure means something different to each of us. Uh, what is important is it's, it's something that challenges us, that uh, helps us, you know, kind of lose track of time because we're having so much fun with it. And uh, it's something that will, you know, we're not collecting more possessions, which I think far too many people do in an effort to be happier. We're collecting experiences and stories. And those are the things we'll be telling our grandkids, you know, 60 years from now, or the things we'll be telling our friends sitting in rocking chairs 70 years from now saying, remember that time we went to... Machu Picchu, or do you remember that time we camped in the backyard and, and then there was a torrential downpour? Those are the things I think we're, we should be collecting and banking, and uh, just because the value for them is uh, invaluable, really. Well, you also are big in the idea of the rewrite, and 
Um, and so maybe explain that to us, because it seems like everybody at some point in their life is going to need a new, uh, going to need a rewrite. Like this isn't where I wanted to be, but you can turn it into apparently to something else. Sure. I, I, I worry that too many people end up too far down a path that they think they can't get out of. And they just like, well, it's, you know, I'm, I'm in this career and I've been here for 20 years and, or, you know, my dad died young of a heart attack and I'm overweight. So I'm just going to continue this cycle. Uh, I've, I've run a community of people that have bucked the trend that have, uh, you know, chosen to change their fate, so to speak, and decided that the path that they're on doesn't mean it needs to be the path that they stay on. And if they decide at some age, regardless of how old they are, a relationship falls apart, they lose their job, uh, these things are not, you know, it's not game over. It's just an opportunity to, uh, it's a plot twist, really. You know, and every, think about any great story. Some, some guy or woman is out there trying to find a treasure, and then they meet somebody, and that person gets captured, and all of a sudden the story changes. Now it's about, re, you know, capturing or rescuing, uh, rescuing this person. Life can take plot twists as well, I think you just have to be open to them. So uh, I think it's important for people to realize that no matter how old you are or how far down a path you might be, you always have a choice. And there's always an opportunity to change. It might mean you taking late night coding classes to learn a, uh, learn how to code a language so you can change careers. Or it might mean you might need to downsize your house so that you can uh, take a job in a path that you're absolutely, that you're actually enjoying instead of one that you're merely existing in. So I, I think people need to realize no matter how far down a certain path they are, you can always, you can always divert. You can always throw a plot twist in there and, and try other things. So it's, it's never too late. And you're the author of your fate, right? You're the you're the captain. Yes, you're the, you're captain, the one yeah, that's yeah, you're, uh, master your fate. Yeah, captain of my soul, correct. I mean, it's, to me, that's boy, that's empowering to know that whatever's thrown your way, you, you'll you'll rewrite it. I guess is that what you mean by the rebellion and the rebels? <laughs> yeah, Talk so, about that, because that's a big sure, part so. of uh, almost any really good story is a rebellion or a rebel. Yeah. So when I started Nerd Fitness years ago. I, I was curious, or I, I wasn't sure what to call our community. You know, I was like, I run a website called Nerd Fitness, and I can't just call ourselves, we're not a community. That doesn't sound nerdy enough to me. So as a, as a big fan of Star Wars, I asked the community, I asked my, the members in there, and I said, hey, do you guys want to be part of starting an empire? Or, I'm sorry, uh, building an empire? Or starting a rebellion? And overwhelmingly, the response came in that people wanted to start a rebellion. And I just thought that was so neat and so, so... Uh, appropriate. I don't know. We, I think whether it's nerdy stereotypes or a life that we're not excited about or things that people tell us we should do, uh, there's always an opportunity, I think, to, to kind of go against the trend. And more often than not, it's those that, that swim against the currents, those that zig when others zag. Uh, those are the people that, that end up finding happiness, growth, and, and change. And, uh, but it requires, it requires a decision. Hmm. So for nerd fitness, it's, it's us rebelling against uh, kind of a life of mediocrity, a life of following in the footsteps of, or following a path that we're not thrilled with or a path that we think is inevitable. And it's rebelling against that fate that, and, and rewriting it ourselves. And uh, it's, it's kind of cool. The, the rebellion really started as me just writing a, some blog posts a few times a week. And it's since evolved into this worldwide community of, of people from all walks of life that are helping and supporting each other get healthier, live happier, and uh, do more exciting things. 
That's great. So people can then go to your website and join the rebellion? Yeah, you can join the rebellion. It's at nerdfitness.com. There's some free ebooks you can download. I send out two free articles per week. Uh, if you go to leveluplyourlife.com, you can read the first chapter of the book, which tells my entire James Bond story. You can create a character there completely free. And uh, if you so choose, uh, check the book out. It's available in bookstores and on uh, Amazon and you know Barnes & Noble and websites. Man, great stuff. Uh, Steve, appreciate uh, your time with us today and also just your creativity in, in taking something that might bore some people to death, uh, like life change, and turning it into a seriously powerful adventure. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity. You bet. Steve Cam's his name. Again, go to leveluplyourlife.com or nerdfitness.com. Uh, great stuff. Great tools to help all of us uh, create a, and live a healthier, happier life. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back and uh, wrap up uh, this hour of the show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Again, doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier, happier life. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, now we know how to level up. Uh, We were working with Ben in the uh, last few minutes about him leveling up, and I asked him what superhero he wanted to be, and don't even name the name. But it's just not appropriate. Ben? You asked me an honest question, and I gave you... That would level you down. We need to get you higher. If you want... You can you can level up to me. Really? Let me be your superhero. Please, no. <laughs> Let me be the wind beneath your wings. This is getting kind of weird. Yeah, it is. Hey, um, okay, so here's the deal. Let's say you are a little girl from, you know, wherever, Texas or somewhere. And um, you release a balloon. I mean, how many times have you released a balloon up into the sky, and you don't know how far that balloon's going to travel. Well, an Eaton, Ohio woman found a deflated balloon with a message on it stating that it had floated all the way from Cisco, Texas. April Pope of Eaton, Ohio, shared a photo of the balloon, which bore the message, hello, all the way from Cisco, Texas, to the Cisco Chamber of Commerce Facebook. Now, check this out. You're, you you leave them. That's 948 miles. You just let go of a balloon and you're polluting a whole other state, by the way. But how interesting is it that you – we've all wondered how far that your balloon went. You know, I always thought it was 30 miles. You know, maybe it made it – maybe it may be 50 miles, but 948 miles. So you never know, do you? You never know that uh, – One little kid's balloon at the zoo floating away into space may eventually make it uh, almost a thousand miles away. Who'd have thunk it? Again, another data point that you don't get everywhere, for heaven's sakes. How about uh, this crazy story? Because, you know, life is about, you know, trying to give you what you can. You've heard us bring up um, Bodie McBoatface as the name of that new research vessel. Well, you know, that's being, I guess, blown up in the UK. They don't like that idea. So the people of uh, in Australia are, have decided again to name their council a silly name like Beachy McBeachface. Excellent. 
And when you think about it, why on earth do they keep asking people to send in their suggestions? But uh, in uh, the people of Australia have spoken. They want a council in the eastern suburbs of Sydney to be named Beachy McBeachface. It's where they're now actually combining three councils into one. And as they join these together, they need a name. So they decided to uh, put that out, you know, to the media and say, hey, public, give us some ideas for what we should name our new council. Well, again, it's flying in Beachy McBeachface. A spokesperson told the publication that out of the 200 actual entries so far, the most popular has been Beachy McBeachface. So can I just give some advice? Anybody that's seeking public involvement to name something, don't. Just stop it. Don't ask for the public's involvement unless you're going to use their name. You're going to get silly names. I think that's great analysis. Thank you. Beachy McBeachface. Can you imagine having going to like your city council meeting and it's called the Beachy McBeachface City Council Meeting? Here are the Beachy McBeachface minutes from the meeting. Don't ask, folks, if you don't really want to use it. Come on. You're going to just set yourself up. See, Ben, that's why at times we ask for your feedback and at other times we don't. So do you really want my feedback when you ask for it? It depends. Oh, yeah. It depends on what we're talking about. I always thought you were just hitting a quota. Like a quota for asking you? Yeah. From what the producers wanted? No. Okay. That makes yeah. me feel better. Yeah. It's like a ghost town around here. Have you noticed? It's a ghost town. Everybody's gone because finals are over, school's out. So it's just Ben and I. I'm the most loyal employee you've got. Yeah. And the most financially needy. Yep. Which is why you're here, huh? Mm-hmm. Not because you love the show, just because you need the dough. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Marriage is hard, right? And it's, it's even harder just with the typical issues of life. A spouse maybe that is sick, uh, somebody that has lost their job or has mental health issues. There's so many different problems that can come up. Uh, So am I just supposed to stick it out and stay with somebody that doesn't get me? I hear that all the time. And I don't know. But what will you become? And if you do stick it out, and what will you become if you don't? I, I think our assumption is, well, my life would be so much better without it. But many times I think my, my wife's differences, her challenges and her tendencies force me to become a better person. They force me to become the change. And I understand that that doesn't always bring happiness today, but it brings change, growth over time. So maybe 
there is a benefit to sticking in it a little longer. And there would be even a greater benefit if my partner would get the fact, too, that they need to change, right? I mean, I have clients that have been living in a one-sided marriage for years, and their spouse does not seem to get it. They think, ah, she's lucky. I am the greatest man in the world. And so I sit there and I worry because a guy says, no, seriously, you are so lucky to have me. (laughs) Yeah. It may not. There's a little video of a marriage fight. Uh, It may not. It may not be what you think it is. And you can keep blowing smoke that you're just a saint. But the reality is everyone's got issues. And if, if we can't get real with each other, then we're probably going to have to – we're going to become something a lot less than we can become as humans. We're going to fall apart. So there are maybe some ways to motivate your spouse. You don't have to cross the line. You don't have to use ultimatums. Um, you don't have to beat them up if you need to see some change. But one of the things you might want to do is is find a way to feel love for your partner before you bring up an issue. Most of the time I've found that when we're bringing up our issues with our spouse, we're not bringing up the issue out of love. And why this is so critical is because if I'm feeling anger, if I'm feeling frustrated, if I feel like you're taking advantage of me, then I will approach the conversation through that paradigm, through that way of thinking. And when I do that, my tone's going to be totally off. If I have compassion for my partner who maybe doesn't know how to communicate very well and I feel love and I feel an appreciation for them, if I can feel that when I go into the conversation, it might help me actually position our discussion better versus if I'm going into the discussion out of judgment. So be careful. Watch out for how you approach and the tone you approach with. Also, make sure that you find the um, on switch that's inside your partner. We need to get into people deeply first and find out what does motivate them. There are things that motivate your partner, and there are things that motivate your partner to be a better partner to you. You've seen it at times. So go in and actually pay attention to what they are telling you that, that is a driver. Pay attention to when they are happiest and most connected to you. Right? It might be when you're sitting on the couch watching a football game, even though you hate football, but you notice they're so much more into you, or they're not into you, but they're at least connected in a way, their way. we got to remember the on switch might be on in, inside our partners. We need to go find it in there. Just a couple of ideas, folks, to help you uh, motivate your partner. Find the good. Let's do it. Let's work better on our marriages, guys. Pick it up. Do your part. Come on. That's all we got. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. With just the political race the way it is, life seems kind of stressful, doesn't it? Now, it's summer, so sometimes that relieves some of the stress. Maybe you'll be taking a vacation. But I wanted to give you some some ideas, some tools to de-stress your life a little bit. And I got uh, some of these from Fortune Magazine, 15 Things to Do When You're Feeling Stressed. Uh, a great article that was out on June 8th, and, you know, we we need it. We need to find a way to de-stress if we can. Uh, but one of the ways, the fastest ways that, you know, you may not be thinking about is to increase 
To decrease stress, you need to increase your endorphin production. And one of the quickest and surest ways to, to, do, uh, to do that is, you know, just get to the gym. Take a walk. Uh, anything that releases endorphins. Because uh, with endorphin releases, there's the, the, that good feeling, that positive feeling in your body. So anything, take a walk today. And, and maybe just because the news is tense and you got a lot of people that will be talking about it maybe at work, take a break. Get out. Don't just sit around the water cooler and, and keep talking about it. Instead, get up. Go for a walk. Even if you just walk around your building or um, just walk around your, wherever you are at home. So positive tool, just get some exercise in you, just simple stuff. Not You don't have to sweat it out, but something simple. Also, um, maybe a good day today, too, to watch what you're eating. Uh, if you want to decrease your stress, obviously, you might want to watch and, and minimize your, um, your caffeine intake, but also watching out for the food you eat. And we've talked about it with uh, our great Ron Hager. He's telling us all the time, eat whole foods, don't drink your, don't drink your sugars. Um, Create a, a create a space for yourself. Uh, one thing I've done recently at my own house, I'm writing a, a new book, and I just try to get away. I go to my office, sit down there, and just escape and find a space where I can meditate. Um, I'm getting a little bit better at that. I also have to learn to say no. That's something I'm not great at. We've had on the show just recently some tools on how to say no. So you just go look back in our archives on iTunes or on TuneIn, and you can see a, a complete interview or two within the last two weeks about learning to say no. Also, um, make a list of your goals, and when you accomplish a goal or even a part of a goal that you're trying to work on, check it off. That also creates a little endorphin, a little dopamine push for you as well. Um, another way to de-stress would be get lost in a great book. When was the last time you read a book, especially a great book? Um, possibly another opportunity for you is to talk to other people. And uh, they're calling them mastermind groups. But now more and more people have these groups where they can go share their ideas of what they're doing in their business. It's kind of people that are in similar fields as you. If you're a leader, they might be leaders. Um, if you're a manager, you might have management groups you can go talk to. But get out and talk to other people. I also suggest you leave the office. Get out of the office. Get out of your space. Try to get more sleep. Serve someone. All tools to help you uh, take your life back and hopefully de-stress. So what we're trying to do on the show, help you live longer and get through these tougher days where the news isn't so pretty. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Earlier we were talking about how simply the tone that of how your name um, is, is pronounced, like uh, the phonemes they were calling it, how it comes off the tongue may come off with a, a harshness of tone or maybe a softness of tone, which, which then sends a signal to another person, the listener, that you've got a masculine name or maybe a more a softer name, like Ben. So, you know, it's it's just tone. And it's something we don't always pay attention to. But in my world of working with couples and communication and people, tone is telling, right? Tone matters. And so I wanted to spend a little time in the coach's corner talking about our tone. And um, it's it really is, I think, a really powerful indicator 
of of what somebody is actually feeling, of their emotion. Emotion is best managed and understood probably through somebody's uh, tone, more through their tone than their words. So pay attention to the tone, right? Tone, remember, is communication. When somebody says, and you can tell they're down, they're depressed, they're in the sitting on the couch, their arms are folded, they look sad, and you say, are you okay? And they're like, fine. Do you hear the tone? That means they're okay, right? <laughs> yeah, Ben, they're fine. Yeah, because sometimes, like... Kaylee yeah. and I will talk like that, and she'll say that. But she's really sad. That's but why she I, says she's okay, so I assume she's okay. Yeah, because she said, I'm okay, but her tone was like, yeah, I'm fine. Could you hear that? It's I subtle. hear, I'm fine. Okay, how about this? Yeah, I'm fine. Do you hear that? She's almost singing. Okay. Yeah, some people, some people are tone deaf. Some people can't hear it. And I appreciate Ben being honest with us today because tone, it's, it's communication, right? Tone tells the deeper story. Tone is our friend, not our foe. When somebody, oh, don't you give me that tone. Rapping. Yeah, Ben, just sit this one out because that, you might be missing the point. Uh, it's not, but, you know, tone. Some people just don't hear it, but tone does communicate uh, distress and levels of stress. So here are some keys. I'm going to give you five keys to recognizing and and either taming your tone when you need to tame it down or recognizing another person's tone. Okay, five basic keys. Pay attention to them. Ben, take notes because you are going to need to take notes on this one. Okay. Okay. You, you, ben, don't take notes. Don't take notes. Yes, sir. Just listen with your mouth shut. Just listen. Number one, tone is um, tone is not personal. Okay. Tone is not. It's not. They're not trying to beat you up. It's not a personal thing. Tone is just. A vibration that's coming from the emotion. It's the it's the real issue. So here are the tools. First, you got to read the signs of distress. Read the tones. If you hear volume getting louder, if you hear the pitch getting higher, or if you notice the pace of the conversation going faster, you got to see those signs. When you see those signs, it's telling you, pay attention to this one. <laughs> This one's a little more erratic. If they're saying things, but they're not saying, but their emotion is showing energy, but they're not communicating using words that show they're mad. For example, just listen to how often we can change the same sentence. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Same sentence, four different meanings. I didn't say that. Okay, so it wasn't you. You did not say that. I didn't say that. You really didn't say what I'm accusing you of saying. I didn't say that. Okay, you didn't speak it. Oh, you wrote it? Okay, you wrote it down on the board. Is that what you did? You didn't say it. You wrote it. I didn't say that. Okay, so you did write it. You just didn't write what I'm saying you wrote. 
And the only way we can make sense of those same four words, I didn't say that, is by changing our tone and our inflection, right? So we're using this all of the time. But if you hear the volume getting louder, that should tell you something. If you notice the pitch is getting higher, that should tell you something. If you notice it's speeding up, pay attention to it. Then be careful and soften your heart. You cannot not communicate, right? So if I react to your negative tone and I get into my negative tone, then your tone is going to bounce off of me and I'm just going to attack you. Instead, I need to absorb what you're bringing on, your tone. And I don't need to absorb it so I'm destroyed and I can't feel anything. I absorb it so I can better understand you. I want you to share with me so I can better understand you. So I have to soften my heart and allow you to allow this information into me. And instead of just taking the negative interpretation and going with it, I need to I need to not just run with it. I need to get myself centered, focus on what I'm trying to do with you. I'm trying to be an influence. I'm trying to help you. And if you can, alter the mood or alter the mode with how I'm going to handle this and how I'm going to adjust the mood. So if I, if I can and they're mad at me and I can see I'm not mad, just tired. Okay, I'm sorry. And I might even at times give them some space. But if I come back in the room five minutes later and they seem happier, then I'm going to point out you seem happier. Sometimes it's better to just quit talking and maybe find a different mode of communicating, like a letter, a text. And then change what you can in the conversation and realize there's certain things you can't change. But I don't have to get louder because you are. I don't have to get, you know, higher screaming because you are. I don't have to run because you do. Just change the tone, the tempo, the timing. Basic stuff. But hard, isn't it? We'll take a break. Be back. More fun. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, with just a single click, we can access almost anything on the Internet, right? Cat videos, profiles of our former classmates, find out what they're up to. Also, you know, just if you're looking for a good recipe or trying to figure out the latest thing Trump said, you know, these all uh, are made possible because of this growing online community. And uh, we, which, you know, we thought, what's a, what a great blessing, right? Access to all of this information. But does, does the access to the information truly mean that we're connected? Joining us today is Dr. Ethan Zuckerman. He's the author of Digital Cosmopolitans, Why We Think the Internet Connects Us and Why It Doesn't and How to Rewire It. The book is called Rewire, and uh, he's going to help us, I think, understand that maybe just because we have the access doesn't inherently mean we're creating the connections we need. Dr. Ethan Zuckerman, thank you so much for being with us today. Good morning, Matt. And you've inadvertently uh, promoted me. I'm not a doctor, but uh, oh, you're not. To be with you and thrilled well, you, to talk. You know what? About this. You are now, Ethan. You oh, have well, officially been. <laughs> I've given you an honorary degree from the Matt Townsend Show. That's fantastic. I uh, I will put that on my CV and I will wear it with pride. <laughs> but but Matt, you've got the heart of the book. You've got the heart yeah, of the argument. I love this. Um, well, thank you. I I am an old school internet guy. I've been online since 1989. 
And back in the day, many of us really believed that having access to this network that connected people all over the globe was going to give us this truly global view. And what it's turned out is in many ways, the Internet makes it a lot easier to connect to people we already know. Uh, And this is a bit of an irony for many of us. So much of the information we get these days is really reconnecting us with old friends. Hmm. It's really keeping us within existing social networks like Facebook, helping us you know, understand where our friends from high school were. And despite the fact that there are at this point hundreds of millions of people from different nations online, you can very easily go through a week or a year and not encounter any of the 60 million Nigerians mm-hmm. who are online in one fashion or another. So really... Now, some would say, well, what's the problem with that, Ethan? I mean, this is this this is good. Now I can stay connected to my circle. But I guess the problem you're saying is we're not connecting to the bigger whole. So there's nothing wrong with staying connected to your circle. And I think in terms of emotional support and, uh, you know, keeping up those strong ties over time, I think all of that's extremely valuable. But there's two issues that we end up running into. The first issue is that it's possible to get isolated and only see things from one point of view. Some people talk about this as echo chambers. Some people have talked about this as filter bubbles. But usually when we talk about it, we're talking about it in terms of U.S. politics. Mm. If you're on the left, maybe you only hear from people on the left. If you're on the right, maybe you only hear from people on the right. One of the bigger problems is that if you're in the U.S., it's very hard to get a non-U.S. perspective on things. You know, right now, the biggest story in the world is the U.S. presidential campaign. Nope. If you happen to be in Europe, the biggest story right now is whether Britain's going to exit the EU. Exactly. If you're anywhere else in the world, the biggest story is almost certainly the Panama Papers, all these revelations about corruption in sorts of different governments. So you can get isolated in that national bubble. Mm. So that's the first thing. It gives you this, this local perspective, and you end up believing that that local perspective is the only one that matters. Here's the second piece of it. We are connected with the rest of the world to an unprecedented degree. The stuff that we are wearing, that we're eating, the chair that I'm sitting on, these things are all from different countries. We are interlocked with the rest of the world through travel, through trade, and we don't remember it most of the time. We pay attention at a moment or two when suddenly someone in West Africa gets Ebola and shows up in a hospital in Texas, and we go, whoa, a second, maybe we should just shut down all of our connectivity. And the answer is we can't. The world is so connected that we have almost an obligation to be more knowledgeable about what's going on in other parts of the world, if only so we understand how the world really works today. Mm. And, I mean, it's Americans seem to have always been branded fairly or not as fairly self-centric you know, wearing their American flag T-shirt, you know, in the middle of France and uh, speaking loudly at a sacred cathedral while everyone is trying to be reverent or whatever. Um, we're kind of always known as being that way. But this this is also just this is more of a this is an actual systemic way that we stay caught in our own view. 
Well, well, so first of all, let me give you some some good news, which is that uh, Americans are not uniquely awful about this. Good. Okay, um, good. We're, we're we're not even the worst tourists in the world. Uh, <laughs> actually, that 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 probably goes to the Brits, uh, who have a tendency <laughs> to drink a little bit too much when they hit the road. Um, but it, it's more a, a fundamental piece of human nature. I did a study when I was working on this book where I looked at where people got their news, and the answer is if you are in a big nation, if you're in sort of the the dominant nation of the region, you're in Russia, you're in India, you're in France, you're going to get almost all of your news from local news sources. If you are in a smaller nation, a nation that, you know, shares a border with a big, powerful nation, so let's say you're in Nepal, let's say you're in Belgium, you're going to start getting a lot of your news internationally. You're going to start looking across the border. So if you're from any sort of big, powerful nation, it's very, very likely that you're going to be isolated in this bubble to one extent or another. But there's an even more basic tendency. It's got a, it, I'm going to use a $1 word here, but uh, <laughs> everybody gets to learn one today. It's called homophily. Homophily is the tendency of birds of a feather to flock together. We naturally pay more attention to people who have things in common with us. If you are an American, you pay more attention to Americans. If you're a Christian, you pay more attention to Christians. Uh, if, if you're a young person, you pay more attention to young people. We flock to people who we think are like us. We have the strong tendency to find our tribe. And so the further away from someone someone looks to us, that the more cultural distance we can see, the harder a time we have paying attention to them. Let me just give you a really simple example. Do you remember about uh, a a year ago, those attacks on Charlie Hebdo, that French newspaper, satirical newspaper, got a huge amount of attention because a lot of people could think of themselves, wow, what if I had been at work and a gunman stormed up the stairs and started shooting the place up because of my beliefs? The same week, more than 2,000 people died in northern Nigeria when they were attacked by Boko Haram. So two horrific examples of Islamic terrorism, but the Nigeria story got almost no attention. And everybody remembers the Charlie Hebdo story. So true. It's because it's really hard for us to think about what would it be like to be a rural Nigerian. It's so culturally distant from us that just on some very basic level, those lives matter less to us. And what I'm trying to say is that that's not a healthy way to live in a connected world. We've got to start looking for some ways to fix it. Wow. That is, and those are perfect examples. And then even, I think we just heard that 500 people drown in, um, I, I guess, refugees coming between Italy and Libya or something. And I'm like, we don't even know the story. We hardly even hear that story because I guess we don't relate to it because of homophily. Well, I think there's homophily where we have a hard time putting ourselves in the shoes of Syrian refugees. I also think that news tends to be about surprise and things that happen over long periods of time that happen again and again. I think what happens is we have a phenomenon called Migo, my eyes glaze over. I've heard that story before. I've heard that tragedy before. I can't make myself care about it. Hmm. And so a lot of what I was hoping social media might help with is what people sometimes call the caring problem. Maybe I can get over 
the difficulty of caring about Nigeria by starting to build friendships with Nigerians. Maybe if my social network changes, maybe if it broadens, maybe if it expands, then I'm going to have a personal tie to these places. But what's been very interesting is that the Internet very early on in, say, the 1980s and the 1990s was a pretty international place, but mostly just because there weren't very many of us using it. Mm -hmm. But once we got to the mainstream Internet, once we get into the 2010s, you know, people really are using this tool mostly to reinforce those existing ties. And the notion of, hey, let's go online and meet someone random from another country, it, it sounds almost crazy, even though there are some efforts to try to make it happen. Hmm. And you call that, I guess, that, that uh, the 90s idea that we'd go out and meet the world and get to know the world was, I guess, the cosmopolitan idea. We were going to become cosmopolitanized. What do you call it? Yes. So, so what I was sort of hoping we might see uh, is digital cosmopolitanism. And, and cosmopolitanism, it's a, it's a very old idea. It's this idea that rather than being a citizen of the city that you're in, you're a citizen of the world. And, and that you want to try to figure out how to be at home anywhere in the world. It's an amazing Ghanaian philosopher named Kwame Apia, and he basically says cosmopolitanism is really simple. It basically comes down to realizing that there are other people in the world who have different values and different ways of living than you do, and that you might have some obligations to them. Mm. So, you know, really simply put, other people in the world view the world different ways, they have different rules. They have different perspectives. And even though that's the case, maybe it's not enough just to accept that. Maybe we really are interconnected. Maybe we really are dependent. And, and so the hope was that as we got a media that took away these barriers, that makes it so easy for us potentially to get information from other points in the world, many of us might start feeling more of those ties. And, and I want to tell you, it's possible. I've been helping to run a project for 11 years now called Global Voices. And this is a project that has 1,400 authors from over 100 different countries. And everyone participates in this. Almost everyone in the project is a volunteer. We report news from each other's countries, and we do it because we want to understand what's going on across those borders and because we want to develop those relationships and those friendships. But it doesn't happen automatically. Yeah. And that was the big discovery out of this. I think a lot of us hoped that this would just go ahead and happen. This would just be a consequence of net connectivity. And what we're finding instead is that if we want it to happen, we would have to choose to make it happen. We'd have to work really hard at it. Mm. It's, um, it actually, it's, it's a beautiful concept. It really is, this idea that we are connected to everyone on the earth and we have an obligation to one another. Um, and, and again, we have to act to make it happen. Powerful stuff, Ethan. Let's take a break. Again, we're speaking with Ethan, who's the direct, uh, Ethan Zuckerman, who is the director of the Center for Civic Media at MIT and a principal research scientist there in the Media Lab. Um, he's helping all of us, I think, open our minds up ab about uh, this need to, to understand our connectivity to others and, um, and maybe do whatever we can to open up our hearts, our minds, our our soul to to the people of the world. We'll take a break, folks. We'll be right back, continuing to understand how to rewire and use the internet to uh, to connect. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us, uh, Ethan Zuckerman, director of the Center uh, uh, for Civic Media at MIT. He um, also is... Uh, uses his research to focus on the distribution of attention in mainstream and new media and uh, to the use of technology for international development. Uh, It's a powerful lesson he's teaching us. He also wrote a book called Rewire Digital Cosmopolitans in the Age of Connection. And a digital cosmopolitan basically is somebody that um, recognizes that they are a citizen of the world. And that being a citizen of the world means you might want to try to understand the world and, and people from different places and uh, and understand, too, that there is an obligation as a fellow citizen on this big, great big planet flying through space. It's – there's something going on here and we need to pay attention and take care of one another. Again, welcome back to the show, Ethan Zuckerman. So great to be with you, Matt. This is cool. Um, yeah, so so I I'd love to just say another word about that Dude. notion of obligations. So so let's go back to Ebola. Remember Ebola? Yeah. No no no. Do you mean Dallas you know? Ebola or African <laughs> Ebola? <laughs> so I I've, I've lived and worked in, in in West Africa for for a whole lot of my life. I used to live in Ghana in West Africa. Um and you know Ghana was really spared Ebola, but uh Liberia, Sierra Leone, Guinea these countries had a really hard time with it. And what's interesting is that countries that were just a little bit richer, like Nigeria, managed to do okay with it. Ebola came to Nigeria, and Nigeria shut it down really quickly. Uh, but, you know, Liberia, Sierra Leone, these are, these are two of the poorest countries in the world. And they had huge, huge problems with it. And eventually, Ebola started becoming a problem for the United States as well. Right. So if we took seriously this idea that the world is connected and inherently connected, that there's really no way that we can close off these connections to the rest of the world, we would be trying to build up the healthcare system in West Africa. It's probably not a ton of money. These are very, very poor nations. Just getting to the point where those countries can respond to the next round of disease in the long run is probably smarter than trying to figure out how to build some sort of wall and ensure that no one from West Africa ever makes it into the United States again. It's so true, huh? It's really hard for us to get our heads around it. And so, you know, I suspect most people haven't read any news from Liberia in the last (laughs) year or so now now that it's not an immediate threat. And so this is what I'm sort of hoping we can find a way to debug. If we can understand that the connection is, is really inherent, that, that no matter Donald Trump's wildest fantasies, you know, if you want to eat chocolate in the future, we're probably going to be connected to West Africa because that's mm-hmm. where cocoa gets right. grown. Um, that as long as we're going to remain connected, we've got to start thinking about what we know and what our obligations are to, to people in these other parts of the world. And I wonder, though, if – because then we, it seems like, might see them as um, something we can use, uh, control, take advantage of. Does, is, that, is that a worry too, right? I mean we want them because they're, you know, they're like us instead of just wanting them because they have cocoa. So I, I'm not sure that, that you know, wanting to, to take advantage of people is the worst thing in the world. Uh, <laughs> I guess it does. It's the market, right? The markets have always sure. been the way we engage. Sure. Hu- human beings trade with one another. They make deals with one another. They interact with one another. They marry one another. 
um, the, the problem is when we ignore one another mm. uh, and, and we still find ourselves sharing the same world, sharing the same airport, sharing the same planet, sharing the same climate. Yeah. Um, I, I went and, and gave a talk in my church um, about two months ago about climate change. And it was an uncomfortable talk because <laughs> what I ended up saying to my fellow congregants was that not only did we have to figure out how the U.S. could have a much lighter environmental footprint, but we had to figure out how people in the rest of the world could have the modern conveniences that we have. That there's no way to essentially say to people in China or India or in sub-Saharan Africa, sorry, you're not going to have any progress. It's really bad for the planet. So we're going to live the way that we live, and we're yeah. going to cut back, and you're not going to advance. Yeah, you guys missed the boat. Sorry. That's right. Sorry. Sorry it didn't work out for you. <laughs> you know, next, next time around that wheel of karma, get born in a better place. Uh, no, somehow we've got to find a way for everyone around the world to have a wonderful you know, future filled with opportunity in a way that's also environmentally sustainable. That forces us to think really, really differently than the ways that we're generally inclined to think. And, and so these things are huge challenges. This is not me sort of like trying to beat people up for being insufficiently global. As you mentioned before, there's systemic barriers to this. When we open a newspaper, a newspaper is far more likely to tell us about wealthy nations than poor nations. When we go onto Google and search for information, we tend to search for information about people and places and things that we already know are important. When we go onto Facebook, we tend to connect with the people that we already know, not use these tools to reach out and make new connections. And those are all places where we would have to engage in some rewiring if we wanted the media to help us make these connections. Mm. So the rewiring, is it – I mean, I, I, it seems like a lot of us might be waiting for – I'm waiting for someone else to rewire it. I'm waiting for the government or you – or a big organ, you know, Google. But the reality is the rewiring has to be us. So, so I think there's two versions of the rewiring. I think we can make personal choices to live in a, in a different media universe. Um, I teach classes here on journalism and, and social change and the future of news, but my, my, my most popular class here uh, is, is on news and participatory media. And everyone who takes this class, the first week, they keep a media diary. And they, they write down what they've listened to or what they've watched, what they've read. And then I just ask people to sort of make some generalizations. What did you learn about this? Um, one of the things that I've learned doing this, and I've, I've done this five times now, uh, is that radio, uh, for me, is the medium that most often leads to serendipity. Uh, because I'm just listening. I don't turn away from a story that I think I might not be interested hmm. in because I'm sort of along for the ride. If NPR, for instance, suddenly takes me to Burma, I'm going to go along with them. Right. Whereas if I have choice, if I can sort of flip through the headlines that I know that I care about in the newspaper, you know, I'm going to read about the Green Bay Packers all the time <laughs> because that's my team and that's you know, who I want to know about. Right. So sometimes having choice isn't so great. So you can start looking at this and you can start hacking your own behavior 
behavior. You can say, you know what, I really want to know more about France. So I'm going to find an English language paper that focuses heavily on France, and I'm going to get some more stories from it. Or I know I just want to be more global, and I know it's hard, so I'm going to lean heavily on NPR. I'm going to lean on the BBC, which I know are deeply global information sources and are going to sort of push me there. But then there's the systemic part of it. And in truth, the people that I was really writing Rewire for in some ways are my students. And my students come out of MIT, they get a master's degree or they get a PhD, and they go to work for Google or Facebook or these big tech companies. Many of them start their own big tech companies. And I wanted to have them take this idea that the tools that we use, these technological tools that we use, make it easier to know about some places and some people and harder to know about others. So I just wanted to make the case to them that they might have a responsibility in building these tools to help us become more global. Hmm. It's, it, I mean, that, that's what's powerful, I guess, is we have a shift, right? We shift, if we can shift our thinking to the global world, I mean, we're already in it. We just seem to kind of consider ourselves, you know, the arm. We're the arm of the world. Um, but we don't necessarily see how one hand can take care of another. In, in, in one of the things I know you mentioned in your book is, and you just brought up the serendipity, um, the, is there's, there's basically three solutions that are potential solutions you talked about. Transparent translation – Bridge figures. Talk to us about bridge figures and talk to us about engineered serendipity, which you just explained a little bit there. Sure. Well, let me do this real, real quick. Translation's yeah. critical um, because everyone wants to talk in their own language. The dream that everyone's going to speak English is, is a dumb dream. It's just not going to happen. And, um, you know, while it would be great for a lot of us to, to learn Chinese, what we really need to do is make translation happen all the time. When you get online, when you look for information, you suddenly stumble across a language you don't speak. Right now, we just turn away from it and we mm -hmm. basically say, not for me. We need translation to happen in the background. We need it to be much better. And we basically need to find ways to, to not make language a barrier to knowledge. The second thing is that when we find information from other countries, a lot of the time it doesn't make any sense. You could pick up uh, a newspaper like the Vanguard in Nigeria. Uh, it's written in English. It's not going to make any sense to you because <laughs> you don't know anything about Nigerian politics. Right. You don't know how to relate to those stories. Bridge figures are people who have feet figuratively in two different cultures. And so they can say, oh, I know Nigeria and I know the United States, so I know how to explain this to you. And I also know how to help you care about it. And it's my contention that these bridge figures, these people who bridge between cultures, are incredibly well positioned to dominate the next 20 years of the economy. Mm. These are the people who are going to unlock connections in the global economy. The third thing that's really important is that there's so much information out there. We need help discovering not what we want to know, but that we didn't know we wanted to know. And this is what serendipity is about. Serendipity isn't just random chance. It's the happy accident through hard work. Serendipity is, is, is Fleming 
finding penicillin, not because he got a lucky break, but because he was working really, really hard to think about bacteria and then managed to see the mold killing off bacteria in the dish. Mm. So serendipity takes work. It might take conscious change, but the idea is that serendipity is something that I believe we can engineer. I think we can actually build systems that help us find the unexpected. And I actually think this is one of the most exciting engineering challenges right now uh, on the contemporary World Wide Web. Wow. That is cool, huh? It's just stuff we don't even know we're looking for. It's synergy. It's, it's, uh, it's, this, it's this emergent property that appears that we didn't even know existed until the right parties came together. Powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you, and you believe you can work. engineer systems to create this serendipity regularly. Well, we're looking at little ones. We, one of my students, uh, Catherine D'Ignazio, built this wonderful tool that, with your permission, tracked where in the world you read about and then started suggesting articles to you from other wow. you know, great yeah. cities of the world. Um, we're fooling around with tools on Twitter that basically say, let's imagine that you follow high tech in the United States. Wouldn't it be great to be introduced to some of the people who are critical to high tech in Nigeria? So we don't want to give you random people. Mm -hmm. We want to give you people who care about what you care about, but are different from you in one sort of critical dimension. You know, I'm a left-wing secular guy. Maybe it would be really interesting for me to be in touch with people who are, are left-wing, but, but deeply people of faith, uh, or, or right-wing secularists, or, or left-wing secularists, you know, from oh, France. Great, yeah. You know, how do we figure out some way to, to give us something in common, but enough difference that it challenges us? That is beautiful. Get on that. I'm working on it. <laughs> I'm working on no, it. No, Ethan, that is, I mean, seriously, like, you could then enroll to be to have your mind broadened through a tool that starts you know you growing you powerful i think we can do it and i i think we can build better tools that do it for other people as well is this what you're doing at mit then this is some of what we're doing at mit and a lot of what we're doing at mit is about helping people use technology to be politically powerful so this idea of civic media is making media to make change in the world. And so some of the changes that I would like to see are, are for the world to be better connected and more global. Another one is for people who are marginal to be more powerful. Uh, but this whole idea that making media is a way of making change, that's the central idea behind our lab. Well, Ethan, you're incredible. That's impressive. And keep up the great work. Now I now you're on my radar, so I can now be changed by you. So I appreciate uh your insight on this. Again, Ethan Zuckerman is his name. Go find his book, Rewire, Digital Cosmopolitans in the Age of Connection. Thanks again, Ethan, for being with us. Powerful stuff, folks. Man. Now, again, wouldn't it be valuable, I mean, to just start broadening? And you don't have to, like, go to all this extreme of being finding your exact opposite. But just start broadening the circle you already believe, you belong in and start understanding all the different sides of that or even just get to another culture. Incredible stuff. Interesting. We'll be back, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Trying to broaden your mind as we uh, help you find the good in the world. We'll be right back. Stick with us.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. What do you think about that? Uh, like just this concept of being a bridge figure. Um, you know, one of the things that we see a lot here at BYU, uh, because these we're going out, so many of members of the LDS faith go out to different countries to serve missions. Um, they come back with a tie, with a connection to another country. Just yesterday, I was watching, I, I left many moons ago and spent two years in Argentina. So when President Obama is in, in Argentina, that interests me. And, uh, and the people there, I understand. And when I see what's going on with their president and their economy at times, it, uh, I have a connection for it. I also have an appreciation of a different culture. And it, it stretches me. It, it helps me understand. My son lived in Mexico northern Mexico for two years. And he has an affinity for the Mexican people, um, a love, an incredible love for the people. So when somebody says, let's build a wall, um, that it impacts him because he's one of these bridge figures. And the reality of our existence is every one of you are bridge figures. The goal, I guess, would be take the role, you know, seriously. Do you feel any connected need to the people or obligation to the people of Africa, of Nigeria? Do you feel any obligation there? Do you feel any obligation for a Syrian refugee? Well, I mean, no. You know, the United States can't be the babysitter for the world. Okay, well, don't give me the line. Give me the reality. Now, if I'm a betting man, you've probably never been to Nigeria. You've probably never experienced what, it, what poverty might look like in another country and why people would do anything to get to this country. Because I'm going to bet if you just experienced it, you'd understand that the issue is a lot more complex than just people coming to America or fleeing a war-torn country. Uh, same thing about religion and faith. Again, I have a deep respect for a lot of religion simply because I sat there and had people explain to me their religion. And – so we all can be these bridge people. And language is incredible. And culture, other people's culture, it is – it's edifying. So just ask yourself what you can do to bridge some of the gaps that exist in our culture and in our society. Can you just bridge the Democrat-Republican gap because you can understand both sides? We need some bridging going on. Uh, anyway, a little challenge for all of us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. 